one. Welcome to our podcast today. Today we're going to talk with Donna Lopiano, who is the current president and founder of Sports Management Resources, a consulting firm that focuses on bringing the knowledge of experienced, expert, former athletics directors to assist both scholastic and collegiate athletics departments in solving growth and development challenges. She was the chief executive officer of the Women's Sports Foundation from 1992 to 2007 and focused on ensuring athletic departments throughout the nation were in compliance with Title IX regulations. Prior to that, she was the Women's Athletics Director at the University of Texas for 18 years. Donna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. So the first thing I want to sort of talk about, and, and you deal with this in, in the textbook that you co-authored with Gerald Gurney and Andrew Zimlis called Unwinding Madness, is the fiduciary responsibilities that you see in today's age for trustees and presidents when it comes to managing and overseeing collegiate athletics. But you want to know what they are? I, yeah, I, from I, your I, perspective, of, your, sure, of, sure. of the lengthy history, tell me what you think they are. Yeah, well, well, trustees of organizations have the legal fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the organization is focused on its mission um, and it observes all federal laws, uh, that it acts ethically, and, you know, ultimately they're they're responsible. Uh, However, they hire a CEO to manage the day-to-day activity and they shouldn't be involved in the day-to-day management of activity, but they should set the law, the standards and the policies for the institution so that the CEO is held accountable in the same way that they are to adhering to laws and to acting ethically. Um, so that, that's it in a, in a nutshell. But of course, intercollegiate athletics is a lot more complex than just the, the dictionary definition. And, and that's exactly what the root of this podcast is, is that it is such a complex endeavor filled with variations at every level that I think it's challenging for presidents and trustees to try to provide uh, adequate fiduciary and oversight. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are, whether we're doing, getting better at it or not doing so hot. Well, we're, every institution is a member of this larger um, intercollegiate athletic system. There are over 2000 institutions in the United States that sponsor athletic programs, which are, commercialized in various, at various levels, right? Uh, extensively commercialized or, you know, minimally uh, commercialized. But I, I've been, you know, speaking to members of, of Congress recently who are familiar with the structure of athletics. And, you know, I try to get their, their attention. I'm saying, uh, guess what? You can't control intercollegiate athletics. You know why? Um, for a number of reasons. It's Financially, you, uh, you know, there are those of us in the business who say that the uh, costs involved in intercollegiate athletics are controllable, uh, but they're unsustainable at their current level. Somebody's got to control them. And there are lots of pieces of the puzzle that prevent trustees and presidents, um, individuals and institutions from controlling those costs. First, unlike professional sports, which have uh, an emergency break on expenditures, right? If I'm a professional sport entity, uh, I have a a labor union to deal with that constrains what I can give my coaches, constrains what I can spend because I have to give a whole chunk of revenues to the labor force. 
in collegiate athletics. What has the NCAA done? It caps expenditures on the labor force there, so there's no constraint. Like, what do I have to pay labor? Um, and you would think that there would be a, a constraint on the part of uh, trustees saying, you know, it doesn't make sense to spend $10 million on a football coach and I'm only spending $180,000 on the best you know, mind in biochemistry. <laughs> but that, right, they, right. they don't think that way. Um, there's also not a constraint in the sense that um, the, the collegiate athletic enterprise, and people don't realize this, is heavily subsidized by sources that people don't even realize. One, mandatory student fees, 98% of all athletic programs are substantially supported by mandatory student fees, so the non-athlete is paying the bill. Two, tuition money, because general funds of institutions, uh, when those student fees aren't enough, general funds are subsidizing athletics when it goes into deficit and indirectly federal funds. Um, so when you have Pell Grants, for instance, uh, that all students use, that pays mandatory student fees, that pays tuition. Uh, they're on top of the 30 billion in Pell Grants that are given to institutions, there's another 110 billion that flows into an institution from the federal government and, and the institutions like a, a United Fund. It has to get revenues from all sources and parse it out in, in a way that accomplishes its mission. And therein lies the problem that the mission is to provide undergraduate opportunities for all students, not to run a professional sport team. So it's, it's this environment that trustees walk, walk into and um, they realize they have no controls. And it used to be that the NCA controlled it. The NCA, way back in the 1970s, well, as early as the mid-1980s, the NCA was um, a one-member institution, one-vote entity. So when Division One, the most competitive division, went off the rails with rules, Division Two and Three could have veto power, so they couldn't go off the rails. And during that period of time, they were able to control costs. They put limits on scholarships. They said you can't have dorms built just for athletes. You can't have athlete-only training tables. You, they, they did cap, but the antitrust um, system, lawyers, um, started getting after the NCA. So at the NCA, when the NCA tried to cap the fourth graduate assistant basketball coach salary at $14,000 a year, and lost an antitrust suit that ended up it, making it pay $50 million a year, the NCA quit on controlling costs. Um, but the big, the big uh, killer in terms of any hope for the NCAA of ever controlling intercollegiate athletics expenditures is the fact that in 1997, the NCAA, uh, because it was being threatened by Division um, One. FBS football bowl subdivision universities who said to it, hey, we're leaving. We are leaving the NCAA if you don't give us three things that we want. And those three things were one, we're, we don't want to give division two and three our money that we're really earning. It's our star programs that are earning this. So they limit it 
uh, to a fraction of the NCAA national championship revenues, what monies were going to two and three. Then they said, the second thing we want is majority control of the board of governors, which is the, the body within the NCAA that distributes revenues. So that gave it majority control of a plutocracy, right? Of the wealthiest schools started controlling the NCAA. And the last thing they wanted was um, a, a rule that said if the NCAA ever starts an, an FBS football championship, the only championship that the NCAA did not start because all the FBS schools were involved in bowls at the time, uh, that 100% of those revenues would come back to the NCAA, uh, to uh, the football bowl subdivision institutions only. And the NCAA caved on all three things. The very next year, the FBS schools started the collegiate, what is now the collegiate football play, uh, playoff, which is not owned by the NCAA and they don't share those revenues with everybody. So here's this monstrous uh, intercollegiate athletic um, institution that's out there that nobody is in control. The only hope right now is to control costs is probably Congress interceding because it's giving billions of dollars to higher education and starting to put some, uh, some conditions um, for the expenditure of those funds. And just for folks who may not know what FBS is, that's the football bowl subdivision. And that's generally the, the largest schools playing the highest level of football. There's another term, FCS which is the football championship subdivision. And that does have NCAA championships. It's just the top level that does not. In football, that's the, in the football, only sport. That's it's right. the only sport that's not owned by the NCAA. That's right, uh, that's, that's right. The national championship is not owned by the NCAA. Right, which has, creates this, this money dynamic that, that you're discussing about. Well, so, it's, worse, it's worse than that because the NCAA does own the fi final four. Most of the NCAA money comes from the final four. Right. So that's a billion dollar property. But because the FBS controls the Board of Governors, it ensures that when it comes to distributing that money, that fully 80% of those funds go back to Division I schools. Right. So there, that's why the plato um, you can say that the plutocracy is, is ruling. That any revenues who come into the NCAA that should be spent on all 480,000 athletes are only... Uh, are, severely limited to just supporting those top 123 institutions out of a thousand members. Right, right. And indeed, in, in the book, you mentioned that a lot of these reforms really took off in 2014, 2015, when what we call today the Power Five, at the time they were called the Autonomous Five conferences, legislated as they pleased on financial matters and moved away from academic control. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, uh, the FBS repeated what it did in 1997. It, in 1997, it said, we're going to leave if you don't give us what we want. And in 2014, on the autonomy issue, it said the same thing. We're going to leave if you don't give us what we want. And the reason why that's so important is that the NCA knows that the final four, which supports everything else within the NCAA, that is probably going to follow the FBS schools. That that TV will never, uh, you know, spend the media rights fees on a, a Final Four championship that does not include the FBS schools. 
So it's continuing to use this threat. And the reason why the threat is hollow, I believe, is that I think if the FBS ever tried to pull out of the NCAA, that their Congress for sure would intervene. And that's something the NCAA doesn't want to have happen. Not and, the NCAA as much as the FBS. The FBS doesn't want it to happen. Doesn't want that to happen. Yeah. And indeed, in, in your book, you mentioned there were some ideas that supposedly were going to be the rationale behind this breakaway group of Power Five conferences. And they were three things. Integrate, integrate intercollegiate athletics into higher education so that the educational experience of the student athlete is paramount. That's number one. Sustain the collegiate model of athletics in which students participate as an avocation, balancing their academic, social, and athletics experiences as number two. And three, manage intercollegiate athletics so it is understood as a valued enhancement to a quality higher education experience. How are we doing? Well, I'm... I'm uh... I'm not sure whether, you, whether your preface to that was clear that, that what was needed for reform is being proposed by those outside the institution, not the FBS. The FBS isn't saying, let's do that, right? Right. It's, it's people, you know, looking at the system and saying, guess, you know, what are the two, in my mind, what are the two things that really matter? One, is the institution doing what it promised it would do? for these athletes, i.e. give them a bona fide education. And I think the second thing that we don't focus on is are we ensuring a safe environment for our athletes? Are we protecting them from injury? Um, are we being serious about their insurance, about their medical expenses? Isn't, isn't that supposed to be the first priority? And I think in both of those cases, when it comes to highly commercialized sport, we are not graduation rates of, of kids in basketball and football are measurable, 20 points below that of the, the general student body or other student athletes. Uh, and we know that we have serious problems with regard to concussion, that most institutions are not paying the insurance bills for their athletes. Um, most institutions require athletes or their parents to bring their insurance policies as primary and are only taking cheaper secondary policies out and not every institution is fully covering the medical expenses of all athletes. And for sure, um, there's no long-term um, coverage for what we know is going to be a crisis in 10 to 20 years in terms of collision sports and the long-term effects of concussion. Um, we, we, I think we have serious problems that are not being acknowledged in this whole um, athlete health and protection um, mm -hmm. area. Which strikes me as one of the main areas that presidents and trustees ought to be more aware of because it is their primary responsibility to ensure the health and safety of all their students on campus, not the least I, of which I, are athletes. Yeah, but Karen, let, let's, let's be serious here. That our institutions of higher education have lost their ethical way. You look at what's happened with sexual harassment. Uh, you, you look at the whole Nasser uh, the Nasser gymnastics cases. Michigan State, Michigan State, yeah. You look at Ohio State's uh, cases. You look at the protection of Jameson uh, Winston by Florida State. You, come on. Um, you know, we are, institutions are, have gotten so big for their, uh, for their britches. They are more concerned about their reputation and their brand. Uh, and they're only too willing to hide the bad stuff under the rug 
whether a professor is assaulting an athlete or an athlete, a, a, a student rather, or an athlete is uh, assaulting a, a student, they don't want anybody uh, to know that. The most, in fact, the institutions are enablers. You know, in the case of um, you know um, Michigan State, in the case of Florida State, they actually you know made sure that these um, offending uh, the perpetrator athletes were. Uh, we're getting outside legal counsel provided by the institution that, you know, the charges that were brought at the police department level weren't, you know, weren't filed, that the institutional processes for athlete or student discipline weren't followed. So we have some real ethical um, problems at the institutional level that aren't limited to just athletics. Oh, no question, no uh, question. Yeah. You know, when a faculty member is treated unfairly and tries to sue the institution. It's circle the wagons and let's make sure that you know we, we don't have an independent assessment of this. Protect the institution at all costs. At all costs. Absolutely. 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 Well, let, let's circle back to something that the NCAA used to do, no longer does, and I think it's a real loss in the process of, of oversight and 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 self management, and that's this issue of the NCAA. Division One certification program, which was stopped several years ago and had been going on for about 20 years, which was a self-study that athletic departments and institutions did about following best practices under NCAA guidelines. Do you think that was a, a loss of, in helping presidents provide oversight for institutions? A, a tremendous loss in the, yeah. in the sense that it was a peer review system. It was a lot like uh, what an accreditation system should be doing for athletic programs so that every five years, and then it was changed every 10 years, the institution had to assemble all of these non-athletics faculty committees to take a look at everything from gender equity to the, um, the educational uh, achievements, graduation rates of minority athletes who were being uh, recruited with uh, waivers of academic admission standards. It was a great program. It was unilaterally disbanded by Mark Emeritt, the president of the NCAA. And at that time, that had to be approved by the majority FBS Board of Governors. And it went underground. There is now a, uh, to replace that program, a, uh, it's called a dashboard, a data dashboard that is uh, accessible only to a limited number of individuals that are designated by the president of the institution, which enables the institution to hide its practices. So there, we, we lost tremendous transparency in that case. And I suspect that one of the reasons that that program was disbanded was as soon as, as you saw through the certification uh, process that, for instance, institutions were not uh, in compliance with Title IX, that that data became usable if anybody went to court and asked in discovery for the certification data could prove exactly. that the institution knew it was out of compliance and was doing nothing about it. Absolutely. So it gave them plausible deniability, but not having that around anymore. Uh, it, this is... This is a very, you know, it makes you shake your head as somebody who, you know, believes in higher education and, you know, holds it, you know, a level above, um, you know, other 
for-profit pursuits in a heavily capitalistic society. You'd think it's better, uh, but we're proving ourselves not as good as we thought we were in yeah. our yeah. education. Yeah. So one of the things that you and your co-authors really uh, emphasize is uh, the need for a strong process designed to protect the rights of individuals and institutions the, uh, when it comes to NCAA penalties and the intended and unintended consequences. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there, there are lots of pieces to this puzzle. The, the NCA enforcement system is not exactly unbiased. Um, it's the weakest non-commercialized institutions are more likely to get heavily penalized for breaking NCA laws rather than the richest and you know most attractive institutions in the country. Um, the NCA can easily afford to put together a, um, I think, a terrific enforcement system. It can hire um, former judges, retired judges. It can hire outside independent investigators. But right now, it's got in-house investigations. The membership themselves uh, themselves sit on committees uh, and are the jury for those who are accused. So you get rid of the competition, right? right, <laughs> there's, right. No, there's nothing unbiased about the current uh, NCA enforcement system. And the most you know, the quickest way to clean up a system is by making it transparent. The, you know, sunlight is cleansing. Uh, and so if we were to do simple things like require uh, a, t a group of tenured faculty every year to do a report to the faculty senate showing the disaggregated graduation rates by sport, uh, to show, uh, you know, what is a comparison of the percentage of athletes taking independent studies with friendly professors compared to non-athlete students. Uh, if all that kind of academic data were out there and transparent, um, you know, we might have some pressure on the system that would allow us to end the economic, uh, I mean, the academic exploitation and academic fraud that's be become um, epidemic in the system. Um, and again, that gets back to the root of this. The reason I'm doing this podcast is that I'm hopeful that trustees and others who care about college athletics and higher education will start to listen to this and really consider why having the blinders on uh, is, is not a good idea. And perhaps there's another series of folks and organizations that could get more involved in, in what's going on here. So that leads me to my next question. Do you think there is any role for trustees in the NCAA governance process, or should there be? Uh, I really, I have the same level of confidence in trustees as I do college presidents, which is minimal, because uh, they are both subject to uh, the pressures at the institutional level uh, to win, to succumb to major donors or um, you know, even politically interested folks that want to keep their, you know, hands on winning teams or 50-yard line seats. Uh, they haven't to date stepped up to the plate. Uh, I, I think the only hope right now is, is to ask trustees and college presidents not to fight the having Congress do a, a very comprehensive study of intercollegiate athletics and come up in a very transparent way with a series of remedies that 
um, you know, we might adopt uh, as the equivalent of the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, which straightened out the Olympic system for a while. Right. Uh, to have, you know, a 2022 um, Intercollegiate Athletics um, Act that did things like uh, prohibit the, the building of athletic facilities that cannot be used by all students. You know, the isolation of right. the rest from the student body. Uh, that uh, mandated a, a one-member institution, um, uh, one-vote system, and the kind of check and balance system that used to be true in intercollegiate athletics. You can think, and, and, and what Congress has to offer is a limited antitrust exemption that would protect the, uh, uh, the NCAA from being sued if it tried to cap costs. If the NCAA said, we're going to cap coaches' salaries at a million bucks a piece. Why not? Right? Because they're, right. Afraid, they're, they're afraid that they're going to get sued you know, by an antitrust uh, attorney. But the NCAA can give them an exemption for a very specific control of costs within reasonable limits purposes, uh, as well as some educational purposes that could be used, like Title IX is, as a condition of, of receiving Higher Education Act money. You know, you've got to have a transparent system in terms of academic fraud uh, in order to get Higher Education Act money. There are lots of things that Congress could do, um, but, but it takes some really careful study uh, and education of lots of folks to make this happen. Absolutely. And at the end of your book, you and your co-authors recommend 21 guidelines for the NCAA and the governance reform addressing a myriad of areas. Can you share with us a few of the most critical recommendations? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, when it comes to the NCAA, there has to be a replacement structure that gets rid of the plutocracy and that would prevent forever um, the FBS ever saying we'll pull out, right? That, that was the threat that gave them everything they wanted. But Congress, for instance, could pass a rule that says if you're an athletic program that generates over a million dollars a year, that you um, must be a member of a national governance organization uh, that has a one member, one vote rule, has a veto system, has this uh, academic fraud plan, um, imposes a certification system. You, you can control the FBS, which now is uh, out of control. Uh, but it's, it's not any one thing. It's, you know, we listed 23 things. It probably is going to take 23 things to clean up the system. Right, right, right. Well, Donna, that's great. Uh, uh, we're going to leave it there for today. And I certainly appreciate you uh, spending some time with us uh, with your extensive thought about the governance process and, and the impact this is having on higher education. And uh, I really appreciate you joining us. Anytime. And that was Donna Lopiano, who is currently the president and founder of Sports Management Resources, a consulting firm. In January, the NCAA adopted a new piece of legislation involving Olympic and elite level athletes. Athletes that are designated as elite by their nationally recognized associations could receive 
additional developmental training expenses from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee or their national governing bodies. That includes travel for parents, guardians, coaches, training partners, and sports experts. The Division I Council adopted this in January and it goes into effect immediately. What could this mean for athletes who are training for the Olympic Games? This is a substantial change from the position that the NCAA took back in the early 2000s when they refused to let athlete Jeremy Bloom, who was an Olympic skier when he enrolled at the University of Colorado Boulder and attempted to play football for Colorado. Uh, the NCAA ruled that he was no longer an amateur because he had been receiving funding from the Skiing Federation as a result of his talents and abilities. And to this day, Jeremy Bloom continues to work on behalf of athletes' rights in both the NCAA and the Olympics. I asked him what he thought about this, and in specific, what he thought about the names, images, and likenesses, and he laughed. He says, boy, I could have done a lot with that. So this movement towards giving athletes more rights is inching along slowly, but it's important that we keep our eye on the ball because we have a long way to go. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.